I'm Edder Sessian, director of the center. Thank you very much for coming in this beautiful weather. Um, before I announce today's program, uh, I'll tell you about our program in two weeks, which is on uh, humans and non-humans, uh, continuities and discontinuities. And then uh, next Friday, we have our benefit at the Lotus Club. Uh, Today's program is uh, on trauma and its after effects, and it's part one of two that we are going to, that we are starting. The second one will be in the fall. Uh, the participants, and I'm going to summarize what there is here, is Adam Sachs, is a PhD candidate in the Department of History at Brown University. Uh, in 2010, he served as an Auschwitz Jewish Center Fellow under the auspices of the Museum of Jewish Heritage in New York. And from 2011 to 2012, he was the Kahneman Foundation Fellow at the Center for Jewish History in New York and was awarded the dissertation grant of the Central European History Society. Uh, what else can I tell you? He has been long concerned with, concerned with cultural responses to catastrophe, and he has engaged issues of trauma, war, genocide, and cultural representation and production. Publications on these themes have appeared in New German Critic, the Association for Jewish Studies Journal, as well as a forthcoming conference proceedings under the aegis of the Armenian Genocide Institute and Museum. Ryan Talalian is a PhD student in clinical psychology at the New School. Uh, he has a Master's of Divinity from the St. Vladimir's Orthodox Theological Seminary and a Certificate in Armenian Studies from St. Nurses Armenian Cemetery. St. Nurses and I are not related. Uh, his wide range of research interests include the relationship between psychology and theology, positive and existential psychology, forensic psychology, and therapeutic applications of binaural beats. Gottfried Wagner is a musicologist, multimedia director, and publisher. He is here visiting us from Italy. He works internationally as a lecturer of music and politics. He completed his PhD in Vienna and is now based in Milan. His studies are centered on German culture and politics of the 19th and 20th century in connection with Jewish culture and history. He has published on Kurt Weil and Bertolt Brecht and taught in universities and culture institutions on five continents. He was engaged with the post-show opera Lost Childhood with music by Janish Hammer and libretto by Mary Azrael, which was developed since 1992 and first presented in 2014. His autobiography, The Twilights of the Wagners, was translated into seven languages. His last book, Thou Shalt Have No Other Gods Beside Me, Richard Wagner, A Minefield, was published in Germany in 2013 and in Poland in 2014. Eva Weil, who's here from Paris, is a psychoanalyst, a member of the Paris Psychoanalytic Society. She's a researcher at the Sorbonne University. 
and at the Center Centre National de la Recherche Scientifique, uh, a fellow at the Centre National de la Recherche Scientifique in the program of Identities, International Relations and Civilizations of Europe. She, she's a researcher at University of Paris set in the team on the theme of psychoanalysis and medicine and directs two seminars at the Psychoanalytic uh, Institute Society of Paris. Phil Zabriskie is the author of Kill Switch, a highly acclaimed Kindle single about American soldiers and Marines learning to take life in combat and then dealing with this particular aspect of their experience once they return home. Previously, he spent nearly a decade living and working as a journalist overseas, primarily as a staff writer for Time magazine in Asia and the Middle East, covering both Afghanistan and Iraq, along with news and events in Pakistan, Israel, and the Palestinian territories, plus Indonesia, the Philippines, Vietnam, and elsewhere. He has been both a fellow and a senior fellow with the DART Foundation for Journalism and Trauma, spoken at the State Department, the New America Foundation's Future of War Conference, New York University Law School, and twice as a visiting author at the Sun Valley Writers' Conference. He was recently honored with the Bates Farnham Outstanding Achievement Award by his graduating class at Princeton University. Okay. It's really a great honor to be with such a distinguished panel and to welcome our guests from Europe uh, especially. And I hope that the volume is acceptable. Uh, I'll raise my voice. I thought a, a logical place to begin is the process of actually coming to knowledge of trauma and the experience of it. Because from one point of view, trauma perhaps could be seen as making the world a stranger place or making um, removing a sense of home from an individual in, in the world. And whether that be descendants of trauma, whether that be family members who have uh, the role as bystander. And so I thought I just had the question that I would love to hear all of the other panelists answer very simply is how did they first become aware of a traumatic knowledge one could argue either there are genetic or physiological components that we all have a passive knowledge from birth of trauma, but how did we actually begin to confront and engage the challenge that trauma poses to writing history, telling stories about ourselves, about our families, the countries, and the world that we live in? Anybody can pick from the pick up from there. Well, I don't think I have an answer to the question. I, I I wonder if anybody here has. But still, we psychoanalysts, we uh, aboard. I'm sorry. First of all, I wanted to say thank you. I forgot <laughs> to inviting okay. me. And uh, uh, English is not my uh, first language, so I'll try to be comprehensible by by you. And please interrupt me if you don't understand. For us psychoanalysts, we, we, we get to trauma through the symptoms. So we, that, that means that we immediately go into the field of psychopathology 
in a way, which means that we, we know the trauma, of course, as a person, as a person we know the trauma like anybody else and even more, but as professional, we know the trauma by its effects, the, the, the effects it has on the people and probably the patients that come to us, which is in a way some kind of a bias because we only know of the pathologic, of psychopathologic effects of uh, trauma. And so we have to work all the way back to what is trauma, how is it in the psychoanalytic theory since the beginning, but I won't go into it now. I think we can discuss the fact that it's psychopathology or, or not. But not, uh, you mean every, uh, th there could be alterations after a trauma that will not necessarily be psychopathology or every alteration is going to be psychopathology. No, I don't think it's every is psychopathology, but we, the, 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 the course, I mean, the field of the theory relates to psychopathology, which is the field of psychoanalysis in fact which is a real bias that we hope we can discuss between us because that's all we're supposed to know about. <laughs> it does seem to start with, with questions. I mean, I, and I think probably reflects each of us in our own backgrounds and such. And I think for me, it was growing up at a time uh, at, at the height of the Cold War, essentially. And so all the stories that are associated with that and then that you learn through history, you think, I think one is perhaps inclined to think, well, what happened to those people? You know, what, what's the story after this story I've just heard? And how do you then investigate that? And as you get older, you see these things are consistently happening. And, and not only are they happening in real time, but it seems a bit of the nature of trauma is that it, it stops time and then stops uh, populations or individuals freezes them in a given moment that could have been a year ago, it could have been 100 years ago, it could have been 500 years ago. And you constantly get these opportunities uh, to ask more questions and try to figure out how did it happen, what happened afterwards, how does it manifest today? And you know, in, in a way, we, we all have uh, plenty of material to work with, for, for better and for worse. But um, it, you know, once you start asking those questions, it's kind of hard to stop. I think part of what we do need to do is define what trauma is. And I think you've, you've provided a good example of this, this experience of wanting to make some meaning out of something that's happened to us um, or to other people for that matter. And trauma, I would, if I can just proffer um, my own definition, which is, of course, compiled by, uh, composed of things that other people have said for me is that trauma is that which our psyche can't deal with. We can't make meaning out of that experience. There's not some easy way that we can plug it in to this preconceived notion of who we are, who another person is, and what that relationship looks, looks like. So I think to think of when I became aware of trauma would be in my own personal experience to think about when was the point in my life, the first point in my life, where I thought, I can't make sense out of this. What is going on? Hmm. 
and uh, of course then also how closely it is related to us for the starting point to become later on might be having chosen also uh, the way of, of of a historian or a psychotherapeutical, there are always deep reasons why we go a street and why we get interested and committed also for life. So, uh, first of all, I also want to thank for the invitation. <laughs> My name is Gottfried Wagner, and I'm a, I came to the topic uh, already very early as a child. Uh, I grew up in Bavaria, in the so-called American Occupation Zone, and there was a re-educational program, and uh, there was, you cannot imagine, but that was a time without television. So what the information we got by the real news, there was a kind of real news, no television. So we, they put us in, 600 kids, in a huge cinema, and we saw the rise and the fall of the Third Reich without having been prepared by teachers, parents, and grandparents. We know also why. But anyway, we went in, and so we were confronted, and this was not the time of cruel video games. It's also very important. <laughs> it is a very boring provincial city. The best thing was for me always the highway. Even that was built by Adolf Hitler, which, which I found out later on. But the way to escape from this provincial city, nothing happened. So we were confronted without being informed on the Third Reich. And so we saw 600 kids, Hitler, then what he did all for the German people, and uh, all this combination with Nuremberg, and then I even listened to the music in Nuremberg with Richard Wagner, which I, as a kid, heard in a different connection. And then it was even shown with the Wagner clan. So, and then, next sequence was then uh, World War II. And it ended even worse with pictures from Buchenwald concentration camp. So, the, the after effect of 600 kids was immediate because normally we were rather normal kids. Who, oh, no, school is finished. So one went out of the cinema as a group experience also in deep silence. But in this variation, my situation was different because the family was shown on the screen. So there was this kind of association immediately. Oh, these are all Nazis, and they have to do with a place Buchenwald and what is about the Jews. And so this was all a kind of a really, yes, I would say this was already the start of a trauma. And then also becoming, reacting, and wanted to, I wanted to know more what was going on. And that certainly was a starting point for the life I later on uh, followed up. I think Dr. Wagner has introduced some of the direct content if we link the two parts of the program, war and genocide, specifically with trauma. And when we think about it, the 20th century is a century that really has been defined by the trauma of war and genocide. And no previous generations in history ever had to live and die with the knowledge of Auschwitz, Hiroshima, 
the Armenian Genocide, etc. And therefore, trauma in a way is universal and germane to the human race in, in an inescapable manner, in a unique way that will define for the rest of human history its very presence. And learning of the genocide as part and trauma is now part of a human education. And trauma is unavoidable. And at the other hand, uh, as Ryan was saying, in on some sense impossible because we can't grasp it or it can't be written or it can't be assimilated psychically, perhaps. And just to, to perhaps connect it to the note of, well, in a very basic terms, really, what is the trauma of war and genocide? And I think to put it in very simple terms, I would perhaps propose it's death. It's mass death. Death in in, in inimaginably large scale and numbers. And I know that, I mean, Phil's work investigates directly people who have the experience with creating that death, at least in some ways. Well, I, I think in some ways, I mean, related to what you're talking about is the, the perpetrators of trauma are probably less studied, yeah. or less understood because they're less likely to talk or you may not want to talk to them or mm. whatever they may be in prison, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. um, I would, though, expand. I mean, I, I would think, you know, culturally, in terms of larger populations, uh, war and death are, are, are definitely a big part of it. But if we look in this country now, I think trauma is very much associated with soldiers, even though far and away the most trauma victims are rape victims. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's just, I mean, which could be called a kind of a death, I mean, but a, or a kind of a, um, a, a you know, the, as injurious as, as, could, as can be. But um, in terms of, getting to that point where I, I was interested in, in what happens when people kill, it's, uh, that came over time as well because there's all these different elements and once, you know, because I've been doing this for a while and, and you, the, the almost default setting is to go to the victims, you know, go to the people who've experienced it and absorbed it without getting both sides, so to speak, and it's not a, a sort of equivalency, but, but it's just parties to this thing. and, and both roles matter. I mean, I think both roles matter. You know, who it was that injured you, who it was that killed your people, your family, whatever. It's all related in a way that I think is, is uh, relevant for a long time to come. And, and just as you say, when you look at the 20th century, um, we can go back further. I mean, we talk about Native Americans in this country. Uh, what happens to those people who, who did this thing to you and your people, that matters. And what happens on the flip side as well, it all matters in, in the evolution of one's own experience of trauma, their own and, and their people's, I'd say. Uh, Abel and I had lunch yesterday and we were talking about the study of perpetrators and the importance of doing that study. But do you think um, it's possible that the perpetrators have not been studied enough, not only because they're not available, because obviously a large number of them are available, uh, in Cambodia, and, but that we really are not that interested in hearing their story because uh, in a way it's happening a little bit with Turkey. They have an explanation for their behavior. Uh, so why would we be interested? Sure. Well, I, I, think, that, I think that's true. And I think, I think um, on, a, on a larger scale, especially when you get something like Turkey, you get the political explanation that everyone is supposed to follow on that side, so to speak, you, it's hard to work around it. And, and, and I think you have to find individuals. 
really, and then individuals who are willing to talk about it, individuals who are able to articulate it in some way, um, and, and really a, a setting that works. And I, you know, I think we've probably all been to panels like this before, and even the most interesting ones are somewhat controlled, I'd say, measured. And I happened to go to this thing the other night, it's called Theater of War, it's a, it's a group that uh, reads classical plays about war, usually to soldiers and soldier and re groups related to soldiers, and they did one for journalists who had covered war. And they had uh, David Strathairn, the actor, and Francis McDormand reading from uh, Sophocles' Ajax. And I thought, oh, this will be, you know, they'll sit around a table and they'll do a nice little reading and whatever. And I walked in a little late and David Strathairn was shouting and, and Francis McDormand was wailing and, and like having that injection of the emotion of it into the, the more intellectual discussion was fascinating and jarring and nearly overwhelming to be, to be honest with you. And, and I think that that's what's hard about studying some of these things where you have Ajax as rendered by Strathairn talking about the feeling of, uh, you know, disseminating death essentially um, in ways that you rarely get when you look at, when you have more clinical settings or more standard interview settings. So you're raising an interesting point. It's not that we don't want to hear about it because we don't want to hear the justification. We also don't want to hear about it because if the person honestly expresses the emotions, it would just make us too anxious to sit there and listen to it. Well, in part, I think it triggers a lot of things, but I also think we all know as we hear these stories, there's an impact on us as well. I mean, this is dark stuff. This is, this is not, you know, we have, we have a beautiful Saturday afternoon and we're in here talking about this. I mean, I think it, it's, it's, that's a, a version of, I think, what happens when you study these things. You start asking these questions and, and maybe you all have had similar experiences, but then it becomes something you yourself have to bear. And that's, that's hard. And I think that's hard for populations at large to do. It's not only, I think you're right. It's not that we don't want to hear, but first of all, Perpetrators, usually I'm talking about war perpetrators, they don't usually seek for help or seek for anything outside because they act. For instance, if you watch the Nuremberg trial, it's very disappoint disappointing. It's a, it's a small word for what happens. A small wor <laughs> word. Not wor it's um, that they were not guilty and they didn't say anything about what happened. I'm taking the Nuremberg trial because it's an icon. You say an icon? Um, so usually we don't know anything about perpetrators. We know now, being in uh, 2015, we know a lot about victims. We know more and more. I don't think we can even, I'm not sure we can know more than we know now about victims. But the other side, let's say the, we, the, if the victims have witnesses, of what happened, of history. Then the perpetrators are witnesses too, and the bystanders are, perpetra are, with, are witnesses as well. So we know very little about perpetrators. And it seems to me that uh, the focus has shifted now to the perpetrators. And there was no way of knowing directly what happened, because they wouldn't, they wouldn't talk. Otherwise, there wouldn't be perpetrators. Maybe that's an hypothesis, if they would talk and present what they will do or not do, uh, maybe there won't be perpetrators. I don't know. But still, I wanted to stress two points maybe which seem very obvious. For, we're talking about collective trauma today and the way that it's uh, resented by individual, which is 
a field maybe we could go into it later because the trauma let, could be could appear as the same for everybody, war, genocide, it's just, I mean, everybody goes through it, but everybody reacts in some different ways. And then that it's man-made disaster we're talking about, not uh, what happens in a, in a life, but it's, it's man-manufactured disaster to other men, which makes it very complicated because then it, re, it raises the, the issue of evil, you say evil, mm. and uh, for us, Psychoanalysis, evil is not a psychoanalytical hmm. notion, but we still, we have death drive, we have uh, all kinds of other words for it, but evil is not. So we have to deal, and in fact, it's not, fascinating is not the good, wor the good word for it, but what makes people um, aggress, kill, because we talked about hmm. death before, that's the main, uh, the main issue of our, of our research, if we are researchers. So I think we can maybe, we have not yet talked about transmission, transmission of trauma to the other generations, second, third, maybe fourth generation. We have not yet talked because we're just starting our panel. But I think we'll get to it. So what happens to the transmission of the paper traitors? What happens to the other generations? to children, grandchildren, second, third generation. Maybe it's a way, because as patients, we have had, I'm sure, all, well, the, the people who are psychoanalysts in this uh, audience, they, they heard about uh, descendants of perpetrators being, asking for help. So maybe this is a way of knowing more, but it's only a suggestion, please. But anyway, I think it's, uh I can talk also about a certain own experience when I was discussing with uh, Eichmann Jr. Mm. in the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, also those who really have this kind of top Nazis as fathers, they, believe me, they also, there are some traumatic stories to tell. And when you meet then in, in Jerusalem, discussed that out with Dan Baron, you might, of course, yes. he is a very important voice for the discussion, for the contract. How can we start a dialogue? It's much too much. How can we come from monologues to one day to the discussion? One day might be personally even to a dialogue and then communicate it even via books and publications and the possibilities we have for the video. There is still a lot, has to be done a lot of work. And uh, as you said, uh, rightly. But of course, let's, might be, I would like to know from you, uh, now with a kind of a hist also historical distance, always very close, we have the trial, of course, then of, of Eichmann in, in Israel. And which, of course, uh, we know the famous book then of, of Hannah Arendt and all the uh, after effects, even of, in, include my generation, uh, how to handle those extremely prominent voices uh, as also then part of the Nuremberg trial. And uh, I see now we have 70 years after, we're talking about 1945. And I'm a witness of the discussion also in Europe, especially in Germany, was still is exploding. When you touch these topics, it's uh, amazing. So when we talk about also uh, Armenia, I was just two weeks ago uh, in Istanbul, and uh, 
they have their president who is publicly denied uh, you know, the genocide of Armenians. And now he found himself under high pressure, international high pressure, by the Pope, France, Francis, by the German, French, Italian government, and suddenly he had to make a step, which was quite an international uh, tough discussion. And even for me as a participant in, in this kind of uh, experience, uh, genocide, uh, talking about the Shoah, the genocide, um, Armenian genocide, finding yourself within that, uh, having even in, in, my, in our case as a group bodyguards to talk about it shows that still is everything is very delicate and sensitive. You know? So uh, we have to choose very well our words when we, when we touch these but, grounds. But you are, you are expressing something about the after effect of trauma 100 years afterwards. So it's because of the Armenian, it's 100 years. And we can still watch, I don't know if we can describe or analyze them, but after effects, after one century. Shoah, 70 years. So maybe there is a period of social latency, mm -hmm. which is like, for, well, I, I thought I once, um, uh, I published something about that, being 40 years, social, so collective latency, that it takes, even in Vietnam, it took even the Algerian war, you know, in France it's very important what happened. Anyway, like a very long period of time, which it's more or less silent, let's say more than less, and we don't know why it is, it is silent because the victims wouldn't talk, which I don't think it's true, or the recipients wouldn't listen. Mm -hmm. So it takes about 40, 50 years of collective uh, latency, I'll say it again, to bring the topic into the public scene, and so people could feel free to tell their stories, which maybe they couldn't feel, feel uh, somebody would listen to them too. And I think the lack of civic courage is also thinking, yes, well, we sometimes we're living in this kind of uh, also uh, self-censorship. I mean, I'm talking about the media. I mean, really, who really ask then in a prepared way. <laughs> but why? Why censorship? Uh, Self-censorship yeah, also. But else, um, Ed, yesterday we talked about why 100 years afterward it is so important to deny the, the genocide? What does it make any difference to Turkey now to recognize that has been a genocide? What would it change? So there must be a psychic... It's not economic because there is no economic... Uh, but I have to defend the groups of those uh, young Turkish people. I have contact with them. Yeah. They do really outstanding work, serious work, and they do, do not get the right chance in the Turkish media. Here yes. we are. But why? So this is very, uh, I think... So here we're talking about politics again. Mm. So it, you, you better don't touch certain topics. But the time now in, in Turkey, I'm sure that it's changing. Even after the collective latency is the belated recognition, the belatedness of what actual psychic recognition happens after the period of latency. And clearly the case with, with Turkey that they haven't even begun that process, which means rewriting the textbooks, mm -hmm. changing their national identity to some, uh, to some way that 
has not, uh, they, they have evaded and, and eluded uh, to some extent. And just as a, a brief note about perpetrator versus victim, it's kind of interesting that in the historical scholastic studies, most of the debates about war and genocide are from the perspective of uh, the choices made, that war and genocide is a, can be a political choice made by governments and that option has been produced in the modern world and we see because it's ongoing in, in Darfur, in, in Sudan to some extent in the Middle East as well. Uh, although it's fascinating to hear that from the psychoanalytic research point of view, uh, the individual analysis has focused more uh, on victims rather than perpetrators. And some of the research that has been done on perpetrators of evil um, reveal a couple of very interesting things. One is that um, perpetrators um, just look normal. They don't look that differently than we do. They don't. They, they would have normal. A little bit differently, or no? Well, <laughs> we would hope. We would hope. But the scary part is that um, as much as we get into that realm and investigate it. I think we understand that within us there is evil, or we are capable of doing evil, however you want to you know, phenomenologize that um, construct. But I think that that's one reason why we wouldn't want to study it so much, because, well, it, there, there isn't, it's so hard to explain. And I think even harder to explain on a collective level. You talk about rape, and that's a very violent act done. It, let's just say one person to one person. And that's hard enough to explain. Right. Yeah, I think on some levels, trauma can also be called the thing that tells you the world is not what you think and hope it is. Mm. And it just upsets that balance. And if you talk about, I mean, to both your points, if you talk about a period of latency when a society or a people have to begin to process this thing, that's not happening in a vacuum. At the same time, there's competing forces that would want to seize that narrative and use it for whatever their purposes might be. And you know, to say there's something inside us that means we could all be prone to horrendous acts is a similar thing. That thing is developing, and the context around us or the people around us who are creating the narrative or who are figuring out a way to, make, to try to make you tip over to that side where you will do those things. Is, is out there. I mean, it, and, and it could be, it could happen in any, any number of ways. I mean, you, like you say, you were seeing these films as a young, as you know, as a boy, and then seeing that happen rendered in 10 minutes the whole process or however long the film was. I mean, like that is a, a thing that is going on. Making steps, not then later. Right. And, and I'm sure some of these people that, are, that were at rallies early on in, in Nazi Germany or in other circumstances, they did look exactly like us. I mean, I think they, and they were us in some ways. But the context was such and the charisma behind the people or the individuals or whatever who had this way to tell you or tell me that the, the context of your life is this, so you should do this. And it is possible to make people believe that. But then, of course, also for me, for the perpetrators, it's for me always very important to know how the children of perpetrators are educated, how they are confronted with the war and might be the war crimes of the fathers. No? Mm -hmm. So here we are. And, 
as we know, if this is not discussed out already within the families, it goes on from generation to generation, and uh, you know it's it's not finished with that. If there is the courage, at least within the family, one day to put it on the really to discuss that out, even with uh, pain. But it's necessary to do that. So I'm talking about really now the third and fourth generations. Of course, uh, now I'm talking about I'm also Italian citizen, so I have the confrontation with Italian fascism and denial to work over that seriously. You know, so the way it is treated, also these days of remembrance, it is enormously superficial, and it's always touching. You know in a way which is not acceptable. So, of course, here we are, again, we're entering the, the media. What are we doing? You do one day in, a, in such a way you see all the horrors. One day of Auschwitz-Birkenau and the next generation is paralyzed. You know, but instead of create, creating a continuity of serious teaching, at school, at university, in media, no? there's so much still to do. I think not only in Europe, but also in the United States, no? to make it much more profound. Can I, if I can ask you a question, I'm wondering, when you say, when you start to undertake an investigation of your own family and their relationship mm. to this, did you have resistance from other people in your family? Of course. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> from all generations. Right. Uh, I mean, my, my sisters represent officially the Wagner Festival in Bayreuth. And with now, especially also again with my last book, of course, uh, you know, this is absolutely a taboo book for German so upper society. Yeah, there goes your invitation so anyway, the uh, <laughs> but you, uh, now I'm not any longer in my 20s, so we have to make my own, li <laughs> yes. my own life. And you see that I'm not any longer in my 20s, so it's time, uh, at least for the next generation. I'm talking about my son, and might be one day also my, my grandchildren, and I want to not to leave uh, this kind of not worked over past. But it can come, usually it comes very often, even with the way to, or the other way around, it means that the grandchildren, they mm. ask the You're grandparents. Right. Yes. Yes. And, uh, well, we have all kinds of explanations, like, yes. for instance, that uh, for the survivors, it, I'm talking about the survivor part, yes. but it was difficult for the, for the second generation, for the children of the survivor, to ask the parents mm. because of Oedipus reasons, Oedipian reasons, because it's too yes. hot and too, it's too it's too close Sometimes to own close, development. Yes. But grandchildren often, often, very often, ask the grandparents mm. because it's one generation later. Mm. They can ask, it has gone into history with a big age, I don't say if you say that, big, mm -hmm. great age. Mm -hmm. So it's not only the personal history, but it goes into... But it goes on in generation, in different yes, forms. Yes. No? So uh, very often, the grandchildren ask questions. Mm. And even Germany, there was one German researcher, Wenzler, I think. Yes, yes Wenzler yeah, is famous, yes. Yeah, he made research, and the, the, the title of his book is No, Grandfather Was Not a Nazi. Yes. Although he was, but the... Yes. narrative of the story by the grandchildren yes. is to always pick up a nice event in the, in the life of the Nazi, yes. I mean, and uh, to show that he had some kind of consolidation of mm -hmm. his victims. It's very hard to accept that your grandfather, grand, more grandfather than grandmother, but 
is, was a perpetrator in a way. So and they do reconstruct the whole history. Yes, but then of course we also have to take very seriously in, con um, in consideration that we certainly have had for a long time two Germanys, no? Mm -hmm. uh, don't forget mm -hmm. that. The education, the communistic system is it's a true. completely different one in the in West Germany. And even uh, the problems out of that, the com uh, communication within uh, now Germans from the, from the two sides, uh, even my generation and next generation, there's a lot of uh, problems to communicate about that. No? Mm. So they had two forms of totalitarianism, Hitlerism, then we had Stalinism. And so, so how can you uh, get along with this such a kind? And then coming to, the, to Europe and doing all the work for Europe. Yeah, so it, it, it never ends. No, we have, we have the, the topic has sh slowly mm. but shifted from survivors. I, thought, I, I think everybody thought survivors being victims, mm. but we shifted slowly to survivors. Perpetrators are survivors as well too, the one who survived. So I think it's a kind of frame thinking which is changing slowly if we want to get a complete... Uh, Picture. picture of the situation. That, that's all I wanted to say. I'm sorry. It's, it, please, that's a very, but very key point. But World War II point, is for me so. always a global event. Mm. Mm. And automatically, when one is sensitive, 70 million people died. Mm. So it, it's all the world is connected and automatically mm. we come to mm. To also your specific topic. You well, those, are, well, those are just two huge points, I think. One is the slippage between traumatization and victimization, and right. what do they share in common? How shall we separate them conceptually? And then also between war and genocide, mm -hmm. that genocide happens kind of structurally under the shadow of war. And how do we extract it if we take the case of the Soviet Union, where there is no culture of practice of commemorating genocide and the Holocaust specifically because they lost 25 million people. Right. So what is six to them, therefore? And the way in which, though, that in contemporary European society, that this commemoration has become part of a culture. It's become mm -hmm. part of a practice. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, it's overdetermined by the fact that victims, genocidal victims, I mean, the case of the Armenian Jews were long persecuted. These are minority groups that existed in, at the fringes of society that are often exploited for their, their talents, their adaptations socially and culturally as well. And it does have to do with, I think, a form of exploitation, the fact that for effective reasons, outsider groups are chosen in order to employ some of the, you know, the id instincts, essentially, um, in culture. But it's also just a response to how do victim groups practice commemoration or develop those practices because, I mean, just a very colloquial thing that I often run up against in discussions about this is a very simple phrase that I've heard from um, very complicated minds, such as, why don't they just get over it? Mm. Right. And why is it just not dropped? And this perhaps could lead to many questions. I think one immediate response that Dr. Vile mentioned simply that they haven't gotten it yet. There's nowhere to get over it if you haven't gotten it yet. But they do overcome too, because we're talking, I started with psychopathology, but it's only part of the victims who are showing signs of that. Two-thirds of the victims, they never seek any profession, they never seek or look for professional help. Mm. 
So they do overcome and they don't. Mm -hmm. I, don't I think it's, it's both in a way because they lead lives, they have, uh, I mean, they construct families, they construct institutions for the victims, they do all kinds of things, they, they, they build the country, they, they do all kinds of things, and they don't at the same time. Mm -hmm. And varies from place to place, of course. I lived in Vietnam for a time yeah. and, and was endlessly fascinated and wish and hope to perhaps look at it more one day. But in, in Vietnam, we had the war with the French, the war with the Americans, the war with the Chinese, the war with the Cambodians. I mean, not just, we, we forget about some of those other ones. And then a near, near famine in the 80s. And you go there now, and the attitude is absolutely like, if you'll work with us, we'll work with you. I mean, if, you know, as an American, as the Chinese, and they do not like the Chinese. That's generalized, but they don't like the Chinese. Um, but but, uh, but there's this, this sense of like, we need to get over there. And I don't care what your grandfather did. I don't care what your grandfather Well, I care. But more important is, is how do we get over there? And, and then you go, you know, I mean, you look in the Middle East and you see, like, well, in the 12th century, this happened, and so we're still going to fight about it. And, and how like, does why? React? Sorry, for me, I'm very interested in, in, in your points. What is the discussion of the young Vietnamese? I mean, how do well, they, the young, then you I mean, talk in this to case, them? If, if you're young, say, you know, 20 years old, that means when you, when you were a kid, the country was nearly starving. Mm -hmm. And in the countryside, there were near famine conditions. And so as you grow up, then you get some, you know, the economy gets loosened up, you get some generation of wealth, people start actually having possessions, mm -hmm. they start taking their money out from under the mattress and thinking they can put it in a bank because there's a sense of a future. And then you get a, then the, the Honda scooter was the thing. Like that, that was, that meant you had kind of made it. And that evolves over time. And you look, I mean, even China right now, which, you know, went through, I think one of the, if it's, not, it is strange to say this, but one of the most underappreciated mass traumas of, of, of this past century, uh, or last century, there are things now, and often they are things, mm. filling some of those spaces, I think. Mm. And some of it is commercial, but some of it is just this sense of like, we are moving forward. Mm. We don't have time for this, and it could be a sense but of denial. Are it could be like- in, your, in the discussion with you, when you talk with them personally, when you talk about your work, are they, are they curious to know about uh, your point of view? Well, the, the government of Vietnam was not terribly interested in my point of view. Oh, okay. That's another <laughs> I thing. I will say. Let's talk um, about the people there. Right? And, I, and I remember when, when I left, I had lunch with the guy who, who ran the, the spokesman from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and I said to him, I really wish we could have talked about this, because I think it's very interesting. And I think you have other examples of countries in that area that perhaps show aside what else it might look like. But at least in his role, he couldn't have that conversation. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how much people would want to dwell on it either. And you could call that a form of denial, or you could call that, you know. But, but I think there's a, also a strong um, underground email communication. There are activities which are, of course, kept, still right. secret to not put in risk those who are interested. No? That's a little bit uh, my experience. Yeah, also and, and you have. North Vietnamese, word North Vietnamese authors writing memoirs that you can that people sell you on the street. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. And, yeah and I, I think, um, and and you know, because we were talking about uh, mentioning Iraq before, when American Sniper came out here, um, you know, talking about attempts to seize a narrative, whether yeah. it's de facto or just sort of happens, but but um, a guy named Brian Turner, who was a soldier who wrote a memoir called uh, "My Country Is a Foreign Place" or something like that. He said, we're not going to know the history of this war on our side until we get their side. Mm -hmm. You know, exactly. we need to get those yeah. stories, too. Exactly. Um, and as they come up, 
somehow, and I don't know what the compact is amongst, you know, again, I don't want to speak too generally, but in Vietnam, like, what was the compact that said, we collectively are going to do this, or we are, we, or enough of us are going to do this, that that becomes the, the, uh, the path forward rather than, you know, fighting or still fighting or, or doing whatever else might do, they might do to just stay in that place. To, I mean, it was like refusing to be frozen in that place mm -hmm. that someone else wanted them to be frozen in. So, I mean, also we had, the, of course, the whole discussion with ex-Yugoslavia, you know, what mm -hmm. happened there. No? Right. So, now they had the trial at least in, in Den Haag. Mm -hmm. So, this is really discussed out in Europe, the trial with the, I think, most cruel also per form of per perpetrator. So, right. so, here, coming to the point, now, what is, uh, in your experience, of course, you are much more qualified than I, then uh, the common points when you make comparison, can you make comparison between the different, in, in a certain way, in a point of psychoanalysis, uh, the behavior of perpetrators in the different round our globe? Is there something which you would say, is there uh, deeply inside the human being, the very dark, destructive side to, to kill? We know very little about perpetrators, I psychoanalysts, I think, because that's probably the last person they would look for, because yes. that comes to what you say, to the core of the evil, which is our field of study, too. What makes uh, people, what makes human beings act the way they act? Exactly. But we have only theoretical, Ed, you will correct me, do we have anything but theoretical answers to it? Like for no, instance, I think we, we may be in a position where we can ask questions, be able to formulate questions than have any answers whatsoever. We have no answers, but we have a very thick uh, clinical uh, material that we can, but we, we must be very careful not to generalize observation from what happens on the couch or in a, or an hour how do you say, um, offices, to generalize to what it happens to the whole population. But wouldn't you say that um, genocide or uh, mass massacre of a wide population uh, is different than the kind of trauma, for example, soldiers had during the First World War. They had trauma, they had symptoms, serious symptoms, some of them afterwards. Uh, the, uh, I mean, there's a great deal of uh, money being spent in the U.S. right now on research about post-traumatic disorder, which has to do with the Iraq war. Uh, so there, uh, our soldiers went as fighters, and they ended up being traumatized. That seems to me there's a difference between that and what when you deal with the issue of genocide, which is where, uh, like with the uh, Nazis or with the Turks during a uh, hundred years ago, is they literally. Uh, killed children, uh, and not that accidentally a bomb blew up and there were a couple of kids around, but systematically. Mm -hmm. 
so th there is a difference there. I don't know what that is, but in one, at least you are fighting. Mm -hmm. You have a chance of fighting, or you are the fighter yourself and still get traumatized. And in the other, you are, uh, you have absolutely no recourse. Absolutely. I think, I mean, the original psychoanalytic impetus, I think, to develop war neurosis and trauma theory was originally in the service of the war effort, I believe, right. that yeah. how can we make a more efficient, mechanized soldiers to avoid sons themselves were serving in the Austrian army at the time. Right. And I think that the, the targeted population or the policy, which is really a modern option of genocide, I mean, to come back to this idea of feeling unsafe in the world, mm -hmm. that somehow the awareness uh, is of, it's a modern option to extract the very conditions of life for an entire people and to live under the shadow of a death sentence, and specifically if we take the idea of the, the Armenian homeland and the eastern part of Turkey at the time of saying, this ancient home of this people will not be there anymore, and we can essentially wipe them from the face of history. And the, the famous quote that Himmler made, this will be a never-to-be-written Ruhmesblatt, a, a page of glory in a never-to-be-written history book. Uh, as the undertaking, that somehow it has a structure of a secret uh, as well, that um, an impossibility that can be carried out but shouldn't be known or, or disclosed. And clearly it's a distinctive, the ability to do it I think comes out of the spirit of science, it's been argued. Mm -hmm. It's a surgical operation that only after Darwin with population engineering and genetics, did it even become possible to conceive of the idea of the removal of a people? But I see all the problems we have in this now, right now. They are global problems. We are talking about from the global indifference. Because when we are really going to the bottom of the whole discussion, which I'm living in a country where we had in the last month 80,000 people from different North America, from, Syria, from uh, Africa, sorry, uh, from Syria. No? So we are in a situation that we are concretely confronted with people, dead bodies in the sea. You know? So this is, a, for me, it is a, a very strong signal also for the academic world in which way we will in future now also confront these issues even in our different disciplines. Uh, I think it's, there's a major need for, for me to be more courageous, to, to coordinate much better those who have a, a certain kind of a similar visions, but we're always different. But the co global coordination for these issues to communicate uh, much more profound is, I think, one of the, for me, most urgent issues. But you are the best example of that own courage. If we take sure. the other AFA who is directing in, in Bayreuth, how is it possible that out of the same family you came and went a different direction and your sisters didn't? And I have good, I have even I, mean, I have to defend parts of uh, the, this. 
for me terrible Wagner clan, but there are also <laughs> those who did not, were not part of that. I'm talking about my direct aunt, who is Freeland Wagner, mm -hmm. who left as, uh, as a young woman, Nazi Germany. She was on the list of Himmler to be killed in, uh, in the Hotel Bauer Olag, so let's talk about that too. And there's even a direct also descendant whose name is Franz Wilhelm Beitler, who was in the Weimar Republic with Leo Kerstenberg, one of the most important cultural figures. He had to escape from Nazi Germany already in June because he was married to a Berlin a Jewish woman out, out, coming out from a very important also, family. And so I had to escape. So within the family, uh, so I had also orientations, including my own mother. So you have to make individual out your choice which way you want to follow. Yeah. I think it's all, I think it starts there, yeah. and then of course you have to find of course uh, you need urgently in a certain period also the right people who look after you who who, who give you advice who who help you uh, because it's difficult when you are generally spoken the son of a purpose it's very difficult to be also a child of a, right. of a victim so yes, one needs this kind of exchange putting yourself in, you know, in the position of the other. And, uh, and, and as I know, with uh, three decades experience, it is a very delicate and sometimes also very painful experience, but it has to be done. There is no other choice. I think your question was more how come mm. the same father, the same mm. mother, yes. <laughs> the same education more or less, yes. give uh, such different uh, mm. Out, mm. outcomes. But of course, well, it always that's depends who is influencing you more? It must not always be the father who is who has an impact on you. The, so we all have, might be we were lucky to have, in my case I was lucky to have someone like uh, Aunt Friedland who, who was also a rebellion. <laughs> well, you're also presenting an argument, I think, which would uh, the, the, the Turkish government should listen to because if you uh, you, Germany has recognized its role, yes. and so it makes it easier for you to uh, have developed from that position forward. But if the government doesn't recognize the role, the Turks can't really work this out. Mm. Some have, but the general population cannot have because they, they don't have the recognition to say, okay, so that did happen, and now we are going to move forward. Mm -hmm. They are stuck. And it's, it, I think, the, the, in my view, the Turkish government should realize, should recognize that no matter what they say, the world population considers them as having committed these atrocities. So they're, in a way, walking around with a stain on them, which is affecting their relationship internationally. Exactly. It's affecting their whole application to the European Union. And if they said, okay, so in the past this was done, we apologize and move forward, they start removing the stain. Mm -hmm. But for some reason they can't. So they've in effect criminalized it. They've like criminalized the act yeah. of processing <laughs> it amongst but their own people. I, and that goes I, back to the hopelessness, I think, or helplessness. I am, I'm hopeful for Turkey. I mean, this is, I, I don't see that it's negatively. No, I mean, I really had, um, I'm talking with uh, also scholars in this issue for three decades. And, and, uh, and I'm not, it's not only about this year. So it's a long period and there are things are going on and we should give them help. We should support. They should be actively integrated. 
the young Turks. No? Mm -hmm. But I think the, the hopelessness and the helplessness is um, a big factor in, in collective trauma that isn't um, necessarily present in those cases where a soldier will go up with, with his company. But it's also interesting to think of um, collective consciousness. So it wasn't the first consciousness that we thought of. It was individual consciousness. And, and we're kind of going up and down this ladder of uh, collectivity and individuality, if you will. I think it's interesting to think of, and collective consciousness isn't even a psychological term. It came from sociology. It's Durkheim. Um, and, and he talks about the social organism. And so we can make, building on that, I think, some interesting comparisons between how societies, cultures, ethnicities, um, however you want to define a group, uh, are able to deal with traumatic experiences by looking at how individuals do that. We can look at how groups of perpetrators manifest certain characteristics that are very similar to perpetrators that are individuals. And so what would happen if Turkey said, okay, what would happen if Armenians just got over it? How does that happen individually? And if you have one perpetrator saying, no, I didn't do it, I didn't do it, and everybody else around them is saying, you're doing it, what's, what's my natural inclination if I'm the one who's denying it? Honestly, it's probably to deny it even harder. Dig in my heels. Let's go at it. Until the other side says, you know what? I'm done. And you think, how many times have we gone through that in our lives with individuals? Maybe we can think of how that might also play out on a larger theater. Well, I think that's clearly a case where that kind of denial is part of the trauma. I mean, it becomes Absolutely. perpetuating it. And I would you know, love to hear more about you know, your own work. To what extent do you think it's impacted the survivors, generations of survivors, mm -hmm. in the Armenian case, the fact that the struggle over recognition of identity in public has been so contested or and um, it's often raised as a question and I mean even if one takes the case I think just recently in, down in lower Broadway near Wall Street the first uh, plaque commemorating a slave market I think is being affixed and if how would that transform the geography of New York City if we finally realized okay all of these docks were built by slaves this was where the market was and would entirely transform the perception. And if we think of the non-recognition, um, in that case, that uh, still plagues our society. But I'm wondering about how do you think that it impacts either psychoanalytic therapy or the process of working through the denial and recognition? Yeah, and, and um, maybe I can address the, the psychotherapeutic situation first and just um, dovetail on what you said earlier that um, Beyond would talk about um, the psychotherapist, the, the analyst, and the analysand in the same room together, and that's all you can go off of. You can't go off of anything else that they're bringing in. That's all hearsay. So you just stay in the room, and every individual that you're going to deal with, every Armenian, every Jew, every Vietnamese person, every person from Rwanda, we can go on down the list of genocides that have happened. Um, will manifest those traumatic experiences differently. So there is, again, going back to this, these different levels of consciousness, there might be something in common with other people who had similar narratives 
but they won't be the same narratives. Never are they going to be the same narratives. How can you do your work and your sister does her work? It, so how are they the same narratives? How closer can you get than siblings? And I think it also accounts. Yes, just say something. Mm. Sometimes also a very polit political situation. Um, I'm talking about very concretely uh, the 300 letters of Adolf Hitler with the Wagner clan. They are in possession, still handled like a private property, but they are belong to the to the to Germany. So uh, I'm since 20 years that this has to be put on the table and discussed out with historic interdisciplinary discussion. And no, here we are. That if it is still because there's a contradiction for me of, from the government side, they know about that. And they are silencing it up, and they are Miss Merkel on one side. Oh yes, we are of course helping Israel in all the moment. At the same time, you are covering 300 letters uh, from Adolf Hitler uh, in the period of 1923 till 1945. So there is a contradiction which is quite, you know, which has to also be discussed out. Mm -hmm. It's not a, a family issue; it's a public issue. 300 letters of, uh, of Hitler are an international topic for me, at least. So here we are. It's centering the, the family structure and the public and the society structure. It's much broader, the topic. That's then. what you're trying to say, that there are different levels in, in interaction of collective and individual. I, I, I gather that what we, you were trying to express. Absolutely. But, but and, and there, I think... Um, you can't really work through a trauma unless you can talk about it, I think. I, I, and I think that the discussion hasn't been able to be opened in a lot of ways for Armenians in particular because it hasn't been able to be discussed as openly as possible. The documents on your side now should be known. Yeah, and that's going to take some time. And once you... once we can talk about it, then we can start to work through it, and that might take another 40 years. That might take a couple of generations. So that stuff can be not just on the, on the individual level, but grandparents can ask, or grandchildren can ask, their grandparents, and that's the beginning of talking, and perhaps that's also a factor in that 40-year gap. I think, you know, we, we, it's come up a few times that the sort of seminal events in these processes are trials, like literal trials, Nuremberg and, 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 and others, and I think what you're talking about in an in a individual setting is a form of a trial. I mean, it's a much safer thing, but, but really, because it's not just to discuss, but it's to have a reckoning of some sort. I mean, like an acknowledgement of the, the gravity of the situation, of the acts, and their ongoing consequences. And I, and I, I wonder, like, what you all think. Like, do you need a trial of some sort, um, no matter what your role in this is, as victim, as perpetrator, I mean, especially as victim, you talk about Armenians, it's like, if you don't have the trial and if it's not recognized by the Turks, or in this case by the American president, what does that do to your, your, how you carry this weight? I mean, it's a bit of a denial, it's a bit of a betrayal almost of your sense of what's right. And in the meantime, also, I mean, we're talking about if it, this takes time over 40 years, when you have people who are traumatized, we're talking about big picture, but at the same time, all the little things are happening. And not just, you know, I mean, depression, anxiety, uh, sleeplessness, lack of concentration, all these things that amongst a group really affect how you develop as a community or as a family or what have you. 
Um, and if you don't get this reckoning of one form or another, that's just going to keep going. Absolutely. And, and so what would be gained by a trial, one could ask. For some people, that might be very important. That might provide them with a meaning-making framework, and now we can say, okay, now we've, been, we've received whatever vengeance that we've, uh, we put them on trial. Okay. Mm -hmm. For another Armenian, and by the way, you asked 10 of them, what would you want from Turkey? And you'll get 11 different answers. Right. But really, I think it's up to um, individuals to start making these, um, making their own meaning and being able to share that in a way that can viscerally impact the other sure. as time goes on. And, and one way that the Armenian community has tried to do that is say, all right, Turkey's not going to recognize the genocide. Probably not now, probably not in the near future. But what we can do is try to make some sense out of it. And so what the church did is they decided to make all of the million and a half martyrs, or not all of them, but um, or not, not just a million and a half, but um, they're all, all of those that perished during the genocide are now martyrs. Right. So that's a way, at least spiritually, to sort of provide some sense of meaning. But that's not going to help everybody. No, no, but I think you look at, say, uh, Rwanda right now. What, mm -hmm. what they're pro and there's probably people here who know this better than I do, but they have, in place of sort of criminal trials, they've had kind of public acknowledgments of bringing mm -hmm. together victims and perpetrators to, to sort of, and the, 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 the killers, um, the genocidaires, they've had to publicly state what they did. And it's a, you, I don't know if you could call it a form of cleansing or a form of reckoning or something like that, but having both parties participate that is a bit of a, a contract to say, yes, it happened, I hear you, you know, now we can maybe carry on. And, and from what I hear and what I've read, there's been some good effects of that. But at the same time, of course, right over the border in DRC, in, in Congo, you have the, the sort of detritus of this war ongoing, people still killing each other, and total chaos. Burundi's on the brink as well. I mean, yeah, so I mean, I think Nightmare. that... Right, and so I think you have a, a problem of scale, if nothing else. Like, how do you address all of this beyond just the individual level? But didn't South Africa find a way to move forward? I mean, I don't know too much about it. Well, I mean, it was, it was public... Uh, yeah, truth commissions, I think they call it, truth and reconciliation. You're talking about verity, uh, justice, and, uh, and truth committees. Yeah, and I guess you know even just that verbiage is important to build that into the process of reconciliation. I was invited to discuss with them even. Uh, oh yeah, yes. I, I mean because if you have say somebody wants revenge, <laughs> revenge perpetuates the cycle. I mean, mm -hmm. but it's very understandable. But that perpetuates your cycle because then you become the other thing. You're a victim. You take revenge. Then you're a perpetrator. And so you still have to you have to take that on as well. Mm -hmm. And maybe it feels good, and, and certainly you can understand in many cases why you would want to do it. Uh, and, and like on a visceral level, how you would, might feel, or a cultural level, you might feel compelled to do it. But if you're going to talk about getting to that stage where you reach what, you know, what's called post-traumatic growth, that's not going to do it. But I think also, especially now you, with, with you also story, I think it's that the voice is now so clear and it cannot be changed historically. I think this is extremely, it's depressing that it took 100 years, but the fact that it is now recognized, let's also see the, uh, this, I think, it's, I think for you, it should be very important uh, as a signal no, for the future. How do you see that? Well, as I said, I don't have any personal. Yes, okay, but anyway. Personally, I have no, because of my background being very different from the Armenians who were 
uh, in Turkey. I have, I come, uh, my, my family comes from a different part of Armenia. But uh, I think, uh, and it seems to me that this year at least, and this is more the views of an observer, it seems to me at least this year with the Pope taking such a clear position, it has uh, awakened a lot of uh, recognition amongst everybody about what happened. And uh, I think it's a positive development. I think there is a problem, however, and uh, which Germany has to a degree uh, solved in terms of the matter of restitution. But uh, what we are talking about, that whole eastern part of Turkey, Armenians have, can uh, claim right to property, mm -hmm. there are churches, mm -hmm. there are all sorts of things that Armenians, if it is recognized, can start claiming. Mm -hmm. And that becomes another, uh, I think. difficult issue. Yeah. Can one have any kind of reconciliation that's not purely pragmatic, I mean purely instrumental mm -hmm. for kind of the functioning of the economy and how do we get the basic wheels moving again. And I do think the issue of, of justice ultimately, restitution, not just reconciliation, but has to happen in the context of justice as well. And that might even involve putting that void, that absence of building around the void and saying that we can't actually, this is something that will always remain unbridgeable and there isn't a, a possibility to, that's a wound that can never be healed. And there are some, I think, historically, and going forward, every future generation will have to go through part of their education in engaging and confronting with the, these traumas. But I think that they can be worked through at the same time. And, and even there is, I would say, some sense of spontaneous recovery from trauma, um, at least it, it, I can speak for myself as a fourth generation Armenian American. My mm -hmm. great grandparents, all of them, came here, a few before the genocide, a few during. Um, and I have met several Turks from Turkey and we'll talk and there is a way in which implicitly we just know that we don't need to say anything about what happened that we have moved on somehow in a way, that we know what happened, it, it affects us, it will continue to, but somehow an acknowledgement of what happened in both of our minds makes it possible to have a, a discussion that doesn't even need to go there and can be very amiable. Um, and how did that happen? Did I work through this in therapy? No. Um, did my family go? Did you know my extended family go? How did this? How did this happen? Um, and I think, perhaps from another perspective, nothing is spontaneous. Um, but I don't want to get into synchronicity right now. However, I think that we're built, I think, as human beings, to be able to, at some point, perhaps, make sense of something that was previously meaningless for us, or we struggle to, to wrap our minds around it. 
I mean, it sounds somewhat adaptationist, so socially adaptationist, and I wonder if it's perspectival, do we look at the weakest link or the strongest? And even though it's almost a cliche of survivor narratives to say they built a business and they have all these generations and they're kind of these heroic sort of metahuman, but the, the sort of hardcore, the broken links, the stories that will never be told are for whom sur survivorship is a, is a crisis, that sur survival is in itself becomes there's almost an envy of the dead or an envy of the victims that I wish I ended up there yeah. and because I have to confront and they were released from having to witness their own their own death but, but I think we seeing the world of today I think we what is my feeling about what's going on we nevertheless of all what happens we never should become cynical about human rights. No? Mm -hmm. I think that when we come to this point, and uh, we have that physically, you know, we're talking about 80,000 people who came in the last two months in, to Italy. So this is a very physical experience, and one has to find ways of international communication. It's really, this is like a house is burning down and people watch and nothing happens. Mm -hmm. We have that now. Or in a very literal case, actually. So, but you know, we have, mm. even in our little village, I'm living in a little village, where my wife is the mayor of a little village. So there are empty apartments, and now it was a decision of the, also of the government. So we have to bring them, give them a house. So that is the situation. So everything is rather, rather present and can create a lot of social tensions and all that, so uh, we better watch out. And uh, so unfortunately, these issues are much more concrete. Racism is growing and uh, prejudices. We have Italy, Lega Nord, who are preaching really also racism. So it's a tough period. Uh, but uh, I think one has no choice than to resist no? and speak up. You can try. I mean, uh, to that point, I mean, there's a there's a group in um, Israel and Palestinian territories called Combatants for Peace, which is Israeli ex-soldiers and Palestinian ex-militants from Fatah, not from Hamas, Hamas. But um, and they've come together to do to to say, you know, we used to fight each other. We were both victims and perpetrators, not in that language, but but um, and they're trying to work to affect social change on some level. I think psychologically it's a remarkable story and some of the things these guys have done and transitions they've made in their own thinking and lives are, are quite astounding. Functionally, I don't think it has much of a difference. It doesn't make much of a difference. Which is not to say you shouldn't do it, but, but you need a chorus of these sorts of efforts to happen all at the same time. And, and I think like you say, notice the ones that are doing something really quite special. But also, you know, you mentioned uh, a house being on fire and no one's looking. We had houses on fire, neighborhoods on fire just the other day, and everyone was looking Baltimore, yes. and focusing just on that yes. and isolating it, just the house or the streets on fire, mm. without trying to unravel things. Exactly. Like, where does that come from? Why is that happening? Exactly. Why would people do this? It's a long story before, no? Right, exactly. And I, and I think it's related, you know, you can talk about slave markets in New York City, and like, could you draw those lines? Could you unravel the situation? And, and, and who is going to go that far back? And who would then act on that in any way that was... Uh, I think, and um, which role play the media again? No? What's that? that? The media 
Well, sometimes I, you I know. Yes. <laughs> no, unfortunately, you know, we had. We had I'm living in a country where 70 percent are controlled by Berlusconi of the media. Right. I know what we are talking about. Yeah. And this is all manipulation also of information. Well, I think so. This is tough. We don't, we don't have Berlusconi. In the <laughs> well, so no, I mean, you know, Uncle we Rupert, have, but so anyway, <laughs> uh, education comes also with the right media, no? Yeah, but I think I think there's fewer and fewer. Uh, there's more and more ways to get around that now, and I think the stories that one would want told are out there. It's just trying to connect them, mm -hmm. and I think it is. You know, it's easy when you show the same piece of footage 50 times in an hour mm -hmm. to make it seem like that happened, that is still happening the whole time when it's not. It's one mm -hmm. clip, but at the same time, I mean, you know, these broader stories are out there, and this is one of the, the great things about the internet and other things, and the immediacy of things like social media which is, there is not a control on the narrative. It's just a competition. Mm. But, you know. Okay. I think one side's winning. <laughs> it still okay. is a competition, yeah. and it's changing. You know, there's very, it's a very tough situation yeah. with the media. We'll stop here and go for questions. So if you have questions, you walk to the microphone here. Hello. Hello. Um, I was interested in, you know, moving forward, uh, what steps, uh, I guess, practical, pragmatic steps can uh, parents and those who have uh, any influence over the education system, K-12 and universities, um, to reduce net future traumas? So if we can assume that wars are going to continue happening in our lifetime, my lifetime, everyone's lifetime, I guess, who has some time to go. Um, you know, what sort of steps, aside from you know, being proponents of therapy, all sorts of, uh, you know, psych psych psychology, uh, psychiatry, what other things moving forward? Uh, is it perhaps uh, showing more clips, um, spending more time in the curriculum, focusing on what the effects of uh, these wars were, kind of, you know, conversations like this, um, you know, boil down to kind of have some sort of effect. So when they do actually happen, uh, the net absorption of trauma is less. So I don't know. Maybe someone read something about that or knows something about you that? Many questions. Ava, what do you think? I wish I could answer. <laughs> all the questions. I wish I could have a, a good answer for all these questions. But maybe that talking together and getting to know the other, the other side of oneself and the, and the others, the way they act, the way they don't act, maybe it could help because I have no good uh, recipes to give to that question. Maybe, Ed, you have? Some recipes. I'm that not you sure what what uh, you are for what, what so guess, goal what so goal you are asking. After to saying all that, I guess the, what it comes down to is um, how do we reduce future net uh, traumas attributed to war? Not I, traumas. I, really, I uh, personally have a very pessimistic view of that, okay. uh, which is that it's impossible. It's going to happen time and time again. Uh, there is a part of us that has. Uh, it's no different than animals who jump on each other and kill each other, and uh, I don't think we can ever. I guess perhaps it. it's just uh, getting our youth and those that are even in older ages to have as integrated <coughs> and uh, wholesome of a psyche so that whenever 
fragmentation does occur, it doesn't, uh, the toll of the trauma doesn't take as much of an effect. I don't know. I'm just trying That'd to get my That would be great if we could achieve that. Okay. <laughs> uh, we're talking about human nature, too, which is, uh, is it educate, how do you educatable? Say, edu educatable. Or experiential. More experiential. I think within tra trauma studies, one of the ideas that was floated is essentially a movement about the awareness of death, a death awareness movement that even within end-of-life debates today, the role of the doctor in whether it's medical intervention with disease or choices, there still seems to be a way in which that there's a taboo, that a move towards a greater awareness of what that ultimately means in medical ethics and education and in treatment and therapy, that at the heart, as we said earlier, of these two traumas of war and genocide is mass death, is awareness of death. And perhaps if we began with the individual confrontation, that could be a bridge to the larger political question. Well, there, there was a story in the Times Magazine, and I'm sure I've only read half of it, to be honest, about the brain empathy gap. Um, a researcher who I think was in Toronto, please correct me if I'm wrong because I'm halfway through, who is actually studying what in the brain is the thing that gets triggered uh, for someone to have an empathetic reaction to others, the suffering of others. Um, and, and I think that's a different sort of thing. We talk about brain science. Could you then adapt something like that? And there's certainly some, some possible sinister uh, applications of this and to try to create a soldier who does not feel trauma. But, um, and those will have to be watched out for. But I, I think, you know, to understand that on one level, have those sorts of understandings. I think, like Eva said, have all the voices involved. If you're trying mm -hmm. to understand a situation, don't just take it from one side or the other or, or, or what have you. And then I think also when you're talking about the future generations going forward, try to impart a sense that this, you know, these living in the aftermath of these uh, events is a fraught enterprise, but it is not inevitability. Like there are options. And, and those who can introduce some of those options to someone can, I think, change their lives. I mean, I, I don't, and I don't say that lightly. I mean, someone who might be growing up on uh, Pine Ridge Reservation or in Gaza or, in, or wherever you, you know, would think like, that's where my life is going, you know, where there are opportunities to say like, well, what about that? Or like, here's another possibility that just opens up, uh, I think, the, the, I mean, the realm of possibilities in ways that, that can perhaps remove one from that, that kind of prison of, of that trauma can be. Well, the, you know, the chemical oxytocin increases empathy. What's that? Oxytocin. But anyway, there, how for you? For your discipline, of course, always the concept of the enemy is one of the, for me, the most important issues. Mm -hmm. the, the need always to have the enemy, you know, this is. There is something profoundly, profoundly uh, talking about your outside, discipline. Outside enemy, inside enemy. Exactly, yes. <laughs> but, but yes, but it is a very serious issue. Yeah, it is. A I global guess, uh, issue. There's no one behind me. There's just a, a couple of thoughts that just came to my mind. Uh, I know, you know there's such things as terrorism drills and bystander intervention training and things like that. Yes. Um, also, what you just mentioned, I think it reminds me of, uh, you know, there's certain death cafes, I guess. They only talk about death mm -hmm. and how it makes you feel more alive than ever. Mm -hmm. And there are things like death meditations as well, of which I've personally done and have really transcended what, the, what can happen. Um, 
So I guess, I don't know, just <laughs> very, very just okay. hopeful. Any other questions? Anybody else? Come up to the... Thank you. Uh, the mention was made about uh, American soldiers. You did comparing it with the, the Nazi thing. And uh, we just recently had a discussion in the media about My Lai. And it was very interesting because there's a lot of GIs that are stressed out traumatically, some of which have gone back to Vietnam to live. And the extraordinary thing I'd like to hear some comments on was that uh, this one fellow, American, found a little boy who was in My Lai or somewhere nearby where there was this massacre that went on. And these soldiers, uh, apparently, from what I can learn, and I was aware of it when it happened back in 60, whatever it was, 68, uh, they just started tossing grenades in and firing, and then this Cali character gave the order for them to kill all these people. And there was only women and children there. There were no combatants. But the extraordinary thing was that the Vietnamese boy, who's now a man, uh, d didn't seem to bear any anger. It was just really hard to understand. He said, well, you know, he, he, he was talking, he was being translated, but he said, well, the point of it is, he says, you know, you have to move on. And, and they're very, they're so hospitable and kind to Americans that go over there. And the American guy that was doing the, uh, had went there, the soldier, he said, I couldn't understand how, how the Vietnamese people could be so, so kind and, and, and forgiving. Well, I mean, I, I think it's, it is the Seymour Hersh article, right, in the New Yorker, is that? Well, that was one of the articles, I read the, that, recently, and, right? uh, yeah, that there was also, there's been some, a flurry of them uh, on the radio, too. Right, and there, I mean, there were, there were a few people, Americans living in Vietnam still, yeah. who, who fought and who do demining and work on Agent Orange and, and other yes. things. Yeah. Um, I think, um, you know, like I said earlier, I think it's just kind of remarkable what, what some people in Vietnam can do. But I also think uh, there is self-interest in, in, in it. And I don't mean that in any bad way. I mean, it's just, I think there's, and I don't know where it comes from, because I don't, to be frank, know enough about kind of the culture and the, and the, the underpinnings of, um, is it Confucian, is it Buddhist, or you know, like how these different strains of things play into it. Um, but yeah, that sense of, of moving forward, I think is, is very, very profound. And I think in a way that, you spoke of with, with um, you know, speaking to Turks in the sense of like, well, we were all there. We don't really need to talk about it. I mean, we, we're kind of live it together, our processing uh, as we move through it is pretty profound. And, and also, it was not the last war. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't think the American war is as big of a deal there as it is here, even though the impacts were far more profound. But it was part of a tapestry of events that I think were this, the story of the second half of the 20th century in Vietnam was all these wars, and then it's, it changed a bit to be after war, you know, post-war. Um, and it's, it's also an interesting thing where you have these guys going back, and there's, there's starting to be some guys who go back to Iraq, too. Um, when you look at, you know, the evolution of trauma in someone's life or the evolution of someone's effort to understand their wartime experience, it definitely changes over time. I mean, what happens when the kid who's 22 comes home and when some of these guys are older is very, very different. 
because later on you're confronting your own mortality. You're, you know, you're starting to think about taking stock of your life and why did I do this and why did I do that? So having, having a story like that come out now, 40 years later, is very instructive, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, and if you look, you know, we talk about military suicides, the, the, the majority of those are people over 50. It's not people who just got back. Um, because if you get to a point where things just don't make sense, and you're so far past the context where you can't remember why it was that you did that thing, or it no longer suits, it no longer makes any sense anymore, I mean, it can be, I think, a, a huge, huge rupture. But I think in the cases of um, quite a number, and I don't want to say all, but, but Vietnamese people, and, and I don't have the answer of like why or how, I wish I did, and I'd like to kind of hopefully look at it further, because I think it is really a quite incredible example. Thank you. Back to the first person's question, uh, Steven Pinker has documented there's been a very noticeable decrease in violence and wars mm -hmm. over the centuries, and people forget how bad it was hundreds of years ago, um, all forms of violence. But my question is, is there a difference between trauma experienced by victims due to human causes versus natural mm -hmm. causes? Right? The difference between, say, the Japan, the tsunami, or the earthquake now in Tibet, uh, what's that trauma like compared to war trauma? Well, I, I, if, um, I would say that, you know, the similarities in the aftermath is this sense that all of a sudden something can happen that can end your life or change it irrevocably. Uh, but knowing what the causes are, you know, sort of mother nature, should we say, versus another person who may have been your neighbor or who may have been somehow similar to you, generally speaking, I think is quite different. I think it's a, a different experience of trauma when you know it is someone else did that to you versus the power of, of the gods, so to speak. I mean, and I think that's why a lot of those gods exist, because that, that power that's out there had to be manifested in one way or another, or represented in one way or another. I don't, I'm, it's not to say it's easier, but I think you don't have that same sense of, quite the same sense of, well, you definitely don't have the sense of how could somebody do this because there was no somebody. And if you lived in places, I mean, if you're living in Nepal, you know it is a uh, on a fault line. You know there are huge mountains. You know there are snowfalls, things like this that could do that. I mean, you know, if you're living in, in coastal Sri Lanka, the ocean is a powerful thing, and you have some sense of that, and it can rise up. And I think that that um, it's almost, in a weird way, it's almost more logical. And I think that helps. Like having some sense of why and how it might happen helps in a in a way, or can help in a way. Well, I think the additionally, the, as it's said, that humans are really the only species to gratuitously kill the the, uh, the uh, defenseless, without any instrumental reason. I mean that it does provoke a very direct and profound challenge to any kind of basic sense of security in the world um, and also politically. And I think even just the debates over the causes of genocide, why it is so perpetually baffling and productive of debates, is this, this search for an instrumental cause. Was this a self-interested act? Was this a suicidal act? And the, the lack of satisfaction that it leads for the, the afterworld, uh, there's a way in which that a natural disaster doesn't pose the question of, of interest, of human interest, and therefore for explanation. But it's a great question because I know that originally the, the very organizing principle for 
the roundtable on trauma was to separate precisely natural versus man-made as a basic divide. Yes, I think there are some species of monkeys that kill pretty frivolously to steal the other tribe's women and uh, females, and uh, it's pretty, I think it's pretty well documented now that well, it's also a question of whether genocide, why are we distinguishing mass murder from genocide and why this does have a different category and that it's, again, a function of modernity, of its itself uh, a capacity that human achievement has made possible that was not there uh, in previous centuries. So it does a narrative of progress. And even though, right, I mean, Pinker has been very heavily criticized for, again, creating a kind of triumphalist narrative of progress that all the examples of war and genocide seem to militate against that are germane to the 20th century. So if you make a qualification or quantification of, well, there are X number of wars have been reduced, but how does that stand with the capacity for nuclear annihilation and genocide against. I think mm. it's a value, it's a value discussion perhaps, but. Thank you, anybody else? Yes? I would just like um, to raise the issue of how much certain people's unconscious carries a trauma mm -hmm. that they don't even know they've had. Yeah. I have colleagues in Argentina yeah. who have worked with patients and their dreams bring up that their parents are not really their parents. Mm -hmm. And then it turns out that the, the ones they think are their parents are those who killed their parents, who were among the disappeared. So I think that's an incredible, and, and that's, I've had instances where someone has dreamt they were Jewish and didn't know it, but were carrying all this imagery uh, from the Holocaust. So I would just like a couple of comments about that. Eva? Eva, you should. Yeah, well, uh, I'll try to. That raises the question of what the unconscious knows and doesn't know, and the way it, in, it, it, it knows it or not knows it. And dreams, of course, are a way of a of expressing what is not consciously known. It's true, but it, it's, you can push the question further. It means, how is it transmitted? How do you get all these notions? Is it through an emptiness? Is it through a blank? Is it through uh, unconscious communication, which is not well known, but still we know it exists? It is through uh, certain uh, signs that we don't recognize as obvious signs. It, it raises a whole question of transmission, mm -hmm. of transmissions and what. But it's this this uh, stories of desaparecidos in Argentina. It's it's still it's still open. Look. When the idea first came for the roundtable, Dr. Nassassian mentioned, I mean, some of the most kind of exciting research is epigenetic yes. transgenerational trauma. The fact that we now have more evidence that can be encoded even in the, the genetic material before actual experience, it's a priori to the human life. Yeah, but epigenetic means that it's uh, encoded, but it can only appear in certain environmental situation. Mm. It means it's not genetic completely. I mean, it's not like uh, you inherit a blue eyes or whatever. Mm. To, in order to be active, it has to find and outside some kind of encounter. Mm -hmm. That means something between the genes and the eye. And, mm. How do you say environment? environment. Yes. Yeah. So okay. Hmm. 
Thank you. Thank you.